0: Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This week's Grand Rounds comes to us from the University of Arizona College of Medicine and is titled Preclinical Stage Alzheimer's Disease, characterizing and defining the transition between normal and pathological cognitive aging.
1: It's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, uh, Rick is professor of neurology at Mayo and Scottsdale. And he's a behavioral neurologist with a distinguished research career. I've known him for about 10 years, but I was actually aware of his work way before I personally met him. In the early 1990s, I remember reading some papers on tactile agnosia, and I was very impressed by that it was in the classic tradition of behavioral neurology, lesion deficit correlations. And just for those of you in the audience who may not have been around in the 1990s, so the (laughs) the idea here was... You correlate the lesion with the deficit, and then you can make some inferences about what that part of the brain was doing under normal circumstances. And the best clinical model for that was stroke, right? Because we had very nice lesions that we can see on a CAT scan or an MRI, sharp edges, and you can do this exercise. However, most behavioral neurologists would not look at dementia in those days because dementia was not nice and focal. You had a hard time correlating deficits with lesions. But Rick was smarter than the rest of us, and he started looking at patients who had asymmetrical focal degenerative syndromes, and he published a series of papers which all of you should read because these were some of the first studies to show you can actually do lesion deficit correlations in patients with dementia because there's a predilection of the disease for certain parts of the brain. So the rest of the field, actually, this was a bit of a heresy, I think, for most behavioral neurologists at the time. He wasn't excommunicated. I'm very happy to see. In fact, the rest of us would try to join him in this enterprise. We started looking at dementia, but by the time we got there, he was gone. He was already doing something else. And that's going to be the topic of his talk today. He was looking at people who were not even symptomatic, people who were in the preclinical stage of dementia. And as you will find out soon, it's possible to do lesion deficit correlations and learn a lot about behavior and um, with the newer imaging techniques about the brain regions involved by looking at patients who are not yet symptomatic. And I'm not even sure you can call them patients, right? So Rick is here to tell us about the preclinical stage of Alzheimer's disease. Is going to tell us where the rest of us will be five years from now.
0: Well, thank you, Steve. That was a great introduction. Wow, you've actually read some of those things. Well, Steve is very kind, and that's all old stuff. And actually, the way I got involved in this was not very interesting. I moved from Rochester, Minnesota, where I was doing my, you know, focal lesions and tactile agnosia stuff, which is very interesting, but not very clinically practical. And when I moved to Scottsdale, the Mayo installation there was a little pinky nail comparison to the facility in Rochester. And suddenly I didn't have a nice little rehab unit with people with focal stroke lesions, and I had to suddenly make do with degenerative brain disease. And fortunately, APOE came along and saved my career. So with that as a not terribly interesting introduction, what I do think is very interesting is what I hope to convince you of is something which I think we can now call the preclinical stage of Alzheimer's disease. And just that very term preclinical Really means people who are walking, talking, don't have symptoms, they're not coming to see the doctor for anything, and yet we know something about them by virtue of their genetic makeup. And so we can carry, you know, genetics to its logical conclusion. If you carry a gene for something that puts you at risk for disease, what do you look like before these symptoms overtly begin? As we all know, degenerative diseases start gradually, so it won't shock anybody in this room to hear that there are discoverable changes that occur prior to the symptomatic onset of memory loss. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. So just to start with some very basic definitions. When I'm talking to audiences about Alzheimer's disease, I'll describe to them the syndrome of mild cognitive impairment. And I'll draw the analogy that the mind is like a house with many rooms in it. Memory is one of those rooms, but it's not the whole house. And in the old days, which isn't all that long ago, mild cognitive impairment I would describe as The memory room has gotten a little dark, but the rest of the house is okay, and the degree to which it's gotten dark has not led to any day-to-day disability for that individual. Well, science being what it is, a group of people got together in a room with cigars and cognac and decided to alter the definition a little bit a few years ago. And they said, you know, why are we confining this to memory? Everything can start out mild, so we can have a language version of this, and an executive version of this, et cetera, et cetera. And so nowadays, mild cognitive impairment is really that house with dimming of some light bulbs but not enough to cause disability. And disability really becomes the key word. It's not a very black-and-white defined word, but you sort of get the general idea. And we use the term dementia when the dimming of those light bulbs has reached a disabling point, and a person can no longer carry on their normal daily activities without help. Now, Alzheimer's disease is a specific disease process that causes all of those things. The first day that a person has Alzheimer's disease, They don't even have symptoms. Eventually, they reach the stage where they'll have mild cognitive impairment, which is clinically recognizable. Why don't we just call it early Alzheimer's at that stage? Well, for the very simple reason that, like in anything in medicine, if it's mild enough, you're not totally sure that it's that thing. And so we sort of hedge a little bit and say, well, mild cognitive impairment, knowing that many of those patients will ultimately prove to have Alzheimer's disease, but not all of them. And by the time it reaches the stage of dementia there's usually enough of a characteristic pattern of power outages in that big house of the mind that our clinical pathological correlation rate is pretty high, at least among people well familiar with the problem, somewhere in the 80 to 90% range. So the notion of preclinical Alzheimer's now enters into this before the onset of mild cognitive impairment. And if you read the literature on this, you get the sense that there are two schools of thought. And it doesn't look to me as though there's really much more than an opinion with regard to one of those schools of thought. I prefer the objective school of thought, which actually defines preclinical Alzheimer's disease by objective findings, either evidence of neuropsychological decline that has not become symptomatic, some abnormal brain imaging biomarker. There are CSF biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease these days, although I'm not their biggest fan. They're not normal if they're in the wrong proportions. And I think if you know something about a person like their genetic status and they're at risk and they have these abnormal biomarkers, you could make a cogent case that this may be an individual with preclinical Alzheimer's. And then neuropathology. Patients can die without evidence of cognitive impairment and at <coughs> autopsy have evidence of Alzheimer's disease. And that's not a new observation. We've known that for quite some time. The subject of school basically says... I'm worried about my memory. I think I'm having problems. I go to the doctor. They run a bunch of tests, but they didn't find anything. And that's preclinical Alzheimer's. And the problem with that definition is not just that I don't agree with it. The problem is that people have actually studied other people who complain a lot about their memory and stuff. And guess what that correlates with more than anything else? Psychiatric symptomatology. So, embedded within the worried well, you know, there are some people who may actually have early stage organic brain disease, but there's also a lot of noise in there of people who, you know, that's what they're worried about for whatever reason. We've learned a lot about the genetic basis of Alzheimer's disease in the last 20 years the autosomal dominant mutations all share one thing in common. They all lead to an overproduction and deposition of uh, beta amyloid in the brain, and these are the patients that we see with early-onset familial Alzheimer's disease. And like any other genetically determined illness, these are the folks that we want to consider genetic testing in. On the other hand, they account for a very small percentage of all cases. The presenilin 1 mutation, chromosome 14, is the most common of these three rare mutations. On the other hand, the APOE allele, 4, epsilon 4, accounts for the vast, way more cases than any of these. People will argue about the total APOE Alzheimer's burden, but I think you could probably walk out of a room full of angry neurologists saying 50% and not get totally beat up. So it's something in that ballpark. About half of all patients with Alzheimer's seem to have an ApoE4 allele. Maybe it's not quite that high, but it's something in that ballpark. We don't fully understand why ApoE4 predisposes to Alzheimer's, but it does. And it makes it very convenient, then, to do studies of preclinical Alzheimer's because this is not a rare mutation like uh, the causative mutations, this is a very common polymorphism. 20 to 25 percent of people in North America and Europe have this particular polymorphism, this ApoE4 allele. Now, it varies a bit globally. The prevalence of E4 is lower in Asia and in the Mediterranean region. It's higher in Northern Europe than it is in Southern Europe. But it's still prevalent enough that if you do enough blood tests on people, you can round up quite a few APOE4 carriers. And as you all recall, you know carrier, you can be either a heterozygote for this or you can be a homozygote for this. About 2% of the US population, of the non-demented US population, is an APOE4 homozygote. And the risk of developing Alzheimer's in an E4 homozygote is similar to the risk of developing Alzheimer's in this group. It tends to be a little later age of onset, mid to late 60s, early 70s, whereas these tend to be uh, younger than that. So some of these folks, you know, may die off from other things before then, like heart attack, stroke, cancer, what have you. But if you, you know, screen enough people, you will find E4 homozygotes, and they represent a particularly valuable group of people to follow longitudinally looking for preclinical change. I'm going to talk a little bit about, at the end of my talk, about TOM40. TOM stands for Translocase of the Outer Mitochondrial Membrane. And what's special about it is that it's in strong linkage disequilibrium with APOE. And the group at Duke University, led by Alan Roses, that made this APOE discovery in the early 1990s, Dr. Roses now is questioning whether some or all of the APOE effect might actually be attributable to variants of TOM40 instead. My own opinion from the data I've seen so far that I'll share with you, I think there's a synergistic effect or let's say they're separate effects, I don't think one substitutes for the other, but this is still a work in progress. And then there's, in this day and age of gene-wide association studies, it seems like every other week in one of the neurology journals we're finding some other gene that seems to be associated with a significant p-value with the risk of Alzheimer's disease. None of these have as strong an effect as APOE, and in all of those GWAS studies, the strongest and highest peak that always shows up is APOE. Ultimately, this is the definition of Alzheimer's disease, you know, the neuritic or cord amyloid plaques and the uh, neurofibrillary tangles. And, of course, the main proteins involved in these, the amyloid precursor protein, which is a transmembrane protein, not only on the outer membrane of the cell, but on all inner membranes, too. It traverses the endoplasmic reticulum and so forth. It's not confined to neurons. It's actually present throughout the body. The protein of interest in the neurofibrillary tangles is a protein called Tau, which is a cytoskeletal protein. And when it's targeted for trash removal by getting hyperphosphorylated, it forms these little non-functional paired helical filaments that essentially render the cell inviable, and these are basically dead neurons. And people have argued over the years, you know, which is the more salient lesion. And I think it's fair to say, although this is a bit of an oversimplification, but at least if people are honest with themselves that current pathophysiological models say this leads to that. And I don't think that's true myself, and I think we have some evidence to support that. What we do is actually very simple in our study. We screen a lot of people. We try to skim off all the ApoE4 homozygotes we can find. In the early days of our study, we would match them, one E4 homozygote to one E34 heterozygote, and to two E4 non-carriers. As we kept doing the study and adding more parts to it, we stopped doing that one-to-one-to-two matching. We still have very closely matched groups, but it's not that perfect one-to-one-to-two match paradigm anymore. So we basically try to include all the E4 homozygotes we can. We have a lot of heterozygotes. We have a lot of non-carriers. So we still have a genetically enriched cohort. It's not a community-based random sample. We do a bunch of screening tests, which are listed here, to ensure that these are normal people. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for healthy people. Studying somebody with early-stage symptoms only allows you to rediscover what you already know. Guess why? People with Alzheimer's disease have memory troubles. So if somebody has mild Alzheimer's, what do they have? Memory troubles. So, you know, studying people with mild Alzheimer's doesn't really tell you anything you didn't already know. We are interested in, quote, normal people, and we try to prove that they're normal, at least to this level. And then we have some test procedures. Everybody in our real study, if I can call it that, because we don't actually invite everybody back who's had the blood test for these tests. The real centerpiece is the neuropsychological testing, which people will go through every two years in what I'll call our APOE cohort. And since we started an Alzheimer's disease center, we have normal controls in that that tend to be a bit older. That group, which we do sometimes use some of those folks as well, are tested actually every year. And I think that's good because, again, they tend to be older, like 80s and 90s, as opposed to the folks in the the real APOE cohort, which are mainly 50s and 60s. Some of the folks, about a quarter to a third, undergo PET scanning. Until recently, that was all fluorodeoxyglucose. More recently, Eric Ryman, who does the PET scanning, has been generating Pittsburgh Imaging Compound B, which for those of you who may not be familiar with it, is an amyloid ligand it binds to amyloid, and so you can actually now visualize amyloid in living human brains. And the FDA was recently looking at not PIB, not the thing I just mentioned, but something manufactured by another company called Fluorbetapir that is more stable than PIB and might actually have more clinical applicability. They have not yet approved it. But it looks promising that sometime in the next year or two, assuming everybody jumps through the right hoops, that it may become available. What happens after that, we can only see. Things are not always as good as one might think. We also do MRI scans in these folks, A, to co-register with the PET for anatomical reasons. B, we do some volumetric studies, primarily done at Barrow Neurological Institute by Leslie Baxter. As I mentioned, mainly we're studying people every two years. And what I find to be the hard and mystifying part of this is not done at all by me, but by a very bright young statistician that I am fortunate to work with, Amy Ludueck, who figured out all the statistical models for this. The key is, when we're looking at longitudinal aging trajectories, the strongest determinant of how you're going to do the second time we test you is how you did the first time we tested you. And so what we want to do is separate out that baseline effect. And so she's able to isolate the longitudinal change from entry performance. And she can also you know, show velocity of change, acceleration of change, and those are some of the things that I'll be touching on as we get to the neuropsychological testing. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break.